There is power in God's word. And there's something about when we as his people read it together out loud. And uh, I just want to experience that with you. So um, please follow along. It should be up on the screen in just a minute. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. God, thank you so much for this morning. I pray that as we listen to your word, that as we open it, uh, that you would speak, Lord Jesus, and that uh, the words of um, our mouths would be pleasing in your ears, Lord Jesus. We ask for your revelation. Amen. Have a seat. So, I grew up in the first Christian Reformed church. Are there any, like, Anglican, Presbyterian, Lutheran, growing up people here? Debbie's the only one. Well, never mind then. (laughs) Whatever. So, Advent was a big deal growing up. Lots of traditions, certain songs, candle lighting and the like. And I started complaining to Pastor Greg a number of years ago that our church wasn't Advent-y enough. So last month, Tara caught wind of this, and she invited me to a meeting to talk about what I thought we should be doing as a church to celebrate Advent. I had a few great suggestions about what should be done, specifically about what other smarter, better people should be doing. Uh, But the problem is is that if you complain about something in our church, they make you try and fix it. So here I am. (laughs) Ha ha. (laughs) So this passage that we just read together was recited every year of my childhood in my church usually by like a nervous eight, nine, or 10-year-old who then had to light the advent calendar under the watchful eye of the parent. In my church, there was, you know, a little more risk involved because usually, you know, the the parent would sit down and the kid would be up here by themselves. And back then, we didn't have like barbecue lighters with safeties and stuff. It was like a match. And like, I remember when I did it once, everyone looked very, very nervous (laughs) because they knew me me, and they knew I, I was like Elijah, who's a little crazy. So anyways... By power of years of association, uh, whenever I hear those words, uh, they inspire in me a sense of anticipation that Christmas is coming. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And yet, when I read these words, I can't help but feel how untrue they are in my life right now. I don't know about you, but when I look at my own life, I don't often see the greatness of God's government. Right now, I don't know that I see his peace. I don't see his reign with justice and righteousness. What I see is insecurity, inadequacy, a little bit of selfishness, punctuated by the occasional moment where his light shines in and through my life. There seems to be a chasm between the reality that we live in and the promises that God has given us in his word. These words were written by the prophet Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. If you know me at all, you know that I'm a big fan of the Old Testament. Isaiah is one of my favorite books. It's full of all kinds of great stuff, definitely some weirdness. 
for example, God tells him to name his first son Shear Jashub, which means a remnant will return. Keep that in mind. How awesome is that name? A remnant will return, especially in the context of what we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. But then God speaks to him and instructs him to name his second son Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Can you imagine? Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil? <laughs> Bed, right now. <laughs> I love that. Remnant, dishes. I don't know. Anyways, for more detail on why God had uh, Isaiah name his children that, you'll have to read the book of Isaiah for yourself. Isaiah is awesome. Um, the first part is a prediction of God's righteous and devastating judgment. It's really scary. And then he transitions through the book uh, to couple with that future prediction of devastation, a future promise of hope and restoration. And the first part, Isaiah shows how Israel's sin is leading them into disaster and that their choices to serve gods other than Yahweh are leading them into that destruction. I mean, Isaiah's ministry was absolutely amazing. He managed to live through the reign of four kings, and uh, his prophetic ministry spanned 60 years. During that period of time, Israel was already separated into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah was the king of Judah at that time. Um, and Isaiah was, you know, his ministry mainly was in, uh, it was in the southern kingdom of Judah. We know about this from 2 Kings, if uh, you're interested in that sort of thing. This was an unbelievably dangerous time to be alive. For those of us that are raised in the West in this era, it's very hard to contemplate a real threat to our lives or the lives of our loved ones, let alone a threat that our entire people, our country, our kingdom could be completely wiped out. And this is what was happening in Israel at that time. From the east was arising the specter of this massive, evil, neo-Assyrian kingdom, which was famous for being extremely brutal. As a quick plug, um, I learned about a lot of this stuff from a podcast, uh, Dan Carlin, it's called Hardcore History. It's awesome. There's like a three-episode, 12-hour-long series on the Persian Archaemenid Kingdom where he takes you all the way from, you know, uh, like Assyria all the way to, you know, Alexander the Great. Um, and so that's where I got a lot of these details from. So there's a palace in existence in Nineveh in Iraq right now um, with hundreds of stone reliefs from the reign of the king Sennacherib, which is the one that's mentioned in Isaiah and in 2 Kings. So these are real historical events. And they show the kind of treatment that the Assyrians carried out on the Israelites and the other people in that area. This is around 700 BC. So the Assyrian king, I'll quote him, Sennacherib, boasted of his invasion of Judah that 46 of Hezekiah's strong-walled towns and innumerable smaller villages I besieged and conquered. As for Hezekiah, the awful splendor of my lordship overwhelmed him. And then in another relief, in like the caption underneath, he says, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. The pictures in these reliefs are unbelievable. Impalements, horrible things. I'm not even going to tell you because it's like traumatizing. But this is what, this is what was happening um, to Israel at this time. So in 2 Kings uh, 17, it says, The king of Assyria invaded the entire land marched against Samaria, and laid, laid siege to it for three years. Three years. 
Imagine that, living in a city with the Assyrian army surrounding you for three years. Horrible. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. So Isaiah and his people in the country of Judah watched as their brothers and sisters just over to the north were defeated, many of whom were murdered in awful ways, and those that survived were often horribly mistreated and then exiled to Assyria. We're talking about modern-day Iraq. That's a death march, you know, of a thousand kilometers from Jerusalem and Samaria all the way to Iraq. It's crazy. So just imagine yourself in their shoes. You have the most powerful empire in the world threatening your tiny kingdom, having completely wiped out the other half of God's people just over there. And it is in that context that Isaiah hears God's promise about the coming of the Messiah. It is in in the middle of the threat of an end to their own existence as a nation that Isaiah gives the prophecy about the greatness of God's government and peace. So fast forward about 700 years from the Assyrians to the Babylonians, then the Persians and the Greeks to the time of Jesus. And you find the Israelites enslaved by another kingdom. God's incredible mercy and favor allowed the Israelites to come back from exile. But in Jesus' time, they were a conquered people yet again. Now they were being ruled by the Roman Empire. So God's people, who were given this amazing promise of deliverance by Isaiah 700 years earlier, are still living under oppression and domination 700 years later. In fact, shortly after Jesus' death, Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans, and the temple would be like burnt down. All that to say is that things were terrible when Isaiah gave the prophecy that predicted Jesus' coming, and things were still terrible when Jesus was born. But of all the times that God could have chosen, it was into the middle of that brokenness and longing that Jesus came. Now what about your life? Perhaps nothing is missing. You have everything you ever wanted, perfectly harmonious relationships, a svelte body, a financially advantageous and personally fulfilling career. If you're married, a fantastically successful sex life. Maybe you are masterfully climbing the ladder of success that Pastor Greg talked about last week, or maybe not. Maybe you feel just like the Israelites, attacked from every side. Most of my life, especially during my upbringing, Christmas was a time of should-be's. Should be happy. Should be joy-filled. Should be free of loneliness. It wasn't happy Santa and fun times. Christmas, for much of my life, has been seeing all the things that were missing, the presents other kids got, the relationship between my mom and dad that was broken that should have been, the happiness that other people seemed to have, these things didn't seem to be achievable in my life. So how many of you feel that there is a painful and obvious gap between the reality we see in our daily lives and the promises that we read about in this book? How many of you face daily the gap, the discrepancy between the righteous life that you desire and the sin that seems to hold you captive? 
how many of you long for reconciliation in broken relationships with a friend, a spouse, or maybe the salvation of a family member? How many of you have been waiting for that for months, years, or decades? Today is the first Sunday of Advent, a Sunday of hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not maybe things will get better someday. Hope is longing for God's redemption and salvation in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of some of the worst events in Israel's history where people were being impaled on posts, dragged off into the slavery. It's in the middle of that that God promises them a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom with no end. You see, unlike so many others, our hope does not lie in our circumstances or in the products of our own hands, our hard work, but rather our hope lies in him. Our hope is not in what will happen, but in who we trust. Our hope is not in what will happen, but in who we trust, the one in whom we trust. I look at my own life, what I believe, the person that I want to be, and yet despite all those things, I see myself live selfishly, apathetically, you know, behind closed doors, I see myself lose my temper at my children, and I can say horribly hurtful words to them, and I am ashamed. I see how I can treat others as a means to my own leisure and happiness, instead of really caring about them. And yet, in the middle of my anger, in the middle of my selfishness, in the middle of my sinfulness, he promises me hope. He promises me deliverance. The message of the gospel is that God came down into your brokenness, into my brokenness, to give us life, life to the full. So what then keeps us from receiving that life to the full, from receiving the hope that God offers us? Let's go back a chapter. So, you know, flip a page back, more likely swipe right to Isaiah 8. Um, just a brief primer on reading the Old Testament. It's hard sometimes. I get it. You know, Isaiah, people are like, Isaiah is one of your favorite books. Are you crazy? Yeah, the language is challenging. Sometimes the historical context can be important. But as an elder in this church and the leadership team, we want to commission you with this. The Holy Spirit lives in each one of you. And he has the power to reveal these things to you in his word. I have more faith in God's ability to speak these things to you and to me than I have in our own weak ability to understand it. So God doesn't change. He's the same God in Isaiah as he is in Romans. Even though, like, you know, the New Testament seems a lot easier to read, there is so much in the Old Testament that he wants to give you. So, you know, with that idea, please approach this passage. So, um, in, in this part of Isaiah, we find the Israelites looking for their own solutions to the Assyria problem, right? So, in response, Isaiah speaks to challenge them on who they trust. What are they trusting in? And he tells them what will happen if they continue on the path that they're taking, not trusting God. So remember that. There we go. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and look up, looking upward will curse their king and their God. 
and they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Phew. Mediums and spiritists, see? Well, I don't know when the last time any of you went to a psychic or had your palm read, probably not that recently, but maybe you're doing what I am trying to do, podcasts, audiobooks, yoga, you know, bar method, right? <laughs> Running, the keto diet, you know, CBT, not CBD. Definitely I'm not doing CBD, in case any of you are wondering, just, you know, to be clear. Counseling, like mindfulness training, all the things that we try to do to make ourselves more awesome. And if you're not doing them, you're probably feel, feeling guilty for not doing them, right? So in Isaiah's day, the alternative to seeking God was turning to other spiritual options, worshiping idols, conjuring spirits. You know, it's easy for us as moderns to laugh, like how could you bow down to a you know, wood idol? How could you make a you know, silver statue and worship it? Like, what are you doing with your time? Where are your priorities? Is God first in your life? It's easy for us to laugh at people in like idolatry, but like look at your own life. What are the things that you think are gonna give you happiness, success, awesomeness? Like what are these things? Those are the idols in my life. So the modern day equivalent of consulting a medium is what Greg talked about, Pastor Greg talked about last week and a few weeks before that, personal growth, climbing the corporate spiritual wellness ladder as opposed to following Jesus right? As opposed to being immersed in baptism with him, clothed with Christ. Just like Pastor Greg said last week, I'm not saying from the stage that you shouldn't exercise or read books that will make you more awesome. I'm not saying that. I'm definitely not saying that counseling is bad or that eating healthy is useless. In fact, as a physician, I highly recommend all of the above. <laughs> but what does the word say? Should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Do you ever feel that the things that you're doing aren't working? My diet isn't working. My exercise isn't working. My antidepressants aren't working. All my hard work at work isn't working. Paul says this in Colossians 2. These rules are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Does that sound familiar? Your diet, your program, like all these things, can they, do they actually keep you from the things that you don't want to do? Not in my life. In Isaiah's time, the people in Judah and Jerusalem were desperate. The king of Assyria had come knocking, and he was coming to collect, and they needed to figure out how to survive. So they're looking around for anything that's going to help. Alliances with other kingdoms, Egypt, you know, like uh, Aram, other kingdoms, I don't know. Help from other gods, direction from witchcraft. And Isaiah's message to the Israelites instructed them to consult God rather than any other option. He says that any other alternative rather than God alone, is dead. Does it ever seem as though all the things that you're trying to do to make yourself better are dead? Does it even seem that some of the things that you're trying to do even here, even in this building, even within our faith, are useless and dead? 
There's so many things that stand between us and God, our religion, our efforts, our sin, like all of these things. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone doesn't speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. The problem's always the same, and so is the solution. A couple years ago when they let me preach at the animal service, I, I called my sermon, The Solution to All Your Problems, and here it is. Are you ready? Six words. You ready? Have no other gods before me. Have no other gods before me. When we put things before God, this is what happens. He says that if you're looking out, Isaiah says that if you're looking outside of God and his word, you have no light. Here's what the product of that is. Distressed and hungry, they'll roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they'll be thrust into utter darkness. So depressing. What's your daily existence like? Does it feel like you're running around, you know, with your head cut off like a chicken and you're never getting ahead? When you look around you, are you angry? Do you blame others around you or your circumstances? You know, if only your parents hadn't done X, if my friends would only be more Y, if my company or my boss would only do Z, if my wife could only A and B and C and D, and maybe E. I'm in the middle of a great book by Jim Collins. It's called Good to Great. Maybe lots of you have read it. Um, in the book, the author describes a concept called the window and the mirror. He writes that great leaders, secure leaders, are always looking out the window to give success to their credit, like credit for their success to others. Um, they look out the window to luck for success. In our case, we look to Jesus for success. But in contrast, they look in the mirror to ascribe blame and apportion responsibility to themselves when things don't go well. He, com he contrasts that to weak leaders who look out the window to blame others, you know, for when things don't go well, but they look in the mirror you know, in conceit when things go well. So, by extension, do you look out the window when things go poorly and curse your king, your God, others? Or by faith, do you look out the window to Christ for help? How do you see yourself when you look in the mirror? Do you see yourself as God does? I think it was Pastor Greg that said that as people, we have a very hard time appropriately evaluating ourselves. We either are way too easier on ourselves or way too hard on ourselves. When you look in the mirror, do you see yourself as guilt-free? It's not my fault. Or in contrast, do you see that you're a failure and that the reason things aren't going well is because you just aren't good enough. You just aren't working hard enough. God knows your weaknesses and your brokenness. And he wants to say that you are his beloved child. When I look in the mirror without his eyes, Sometimes I see the blame lying with others, but mostly I see my own weakness, my own shame. Distress, darkness, fearful gloom. I don't know about you, but there's an inverse correlation in my life between my anxiety levels and my trust in God. So the areas of my life where I feel the most anxious are the areas that I have not submitted to God's light and authority. The places where I feel the most lost and helpless are the ones where I have hidden my sins where there are things that I have not given up to Christ's authority and his leadership. So, now for the resolve. Ah. 
So you can find this in Isaiah 9. Um, this is the passage that uh, Elijah read for us. Or in Matthew 4, where it's quoted at the opening of Christ's ministry, which I think is significant. Jesus, like, uh, God could have put any verse in there, but he decided to put this in there, and I think it's for a reason. So, nevertheless, oh, sorry, I'm going to back up. Just remember, chapter 8, we've just come through chapter 8, the darkness, distress, and gloom passage, right? Assyria, death, you know, Samaria just was besieged for three years, and then they were destroyed. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Like, for decades, when I read Zebulun and Naphtali, I was like, whatever, Zebulun, Naphtali. Remember that Isaiah had watched those people be exiled just years before. Talk about distress and gloom. So in the presence of exile, Assyria, murder, genocide, in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. In the middle of that, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is the light. In Matthew 4, it transitions directly to the next verse, which says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that's the light. That's the first thing that he's recorded preaching in the book of Matthew. The NASB says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a super important principle that Johnny was talking about earlier. The word in Greek, you know, for come near, uh, you know, is extreme closeness, or my favorite, immediate imminence. It's so close that you can touch it, but it's not fully within your grasp. And that's what the kingdom is like. Advent comes from the Latin word advenire, which means to come. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Advent means to come. It's coming. Our hope is not in our own strength. It's not in techniques and effort. Our hope is that Jesus has come into our lives right now, and yet he promises that there is still much more of him yet to come. So when you see the gap between reality and the future, that's the truth, is that Jesus is here right now, but there's so much more of him to come, and that's why there's this anguish and pain. Advent is a time of longing where we rejoice that he has come, and yet we long for a fuller expression of him in our lives. I love that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, right? Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel you know, has come to thee, O Israel. Emmanuel means God with us, right? God has come, and he is with us, and he's still yet to come. This is the thing that separates Christianity from any other religion. Christ comes down to us. God comes from heaven to earth in the midst of our brokenness, in the middle of our distress, and our fearful gloom, as Isaiah says, he comes. In Philippians, it says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Another version says he emptied himself. He took all of that power and he set it aside, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. One of my best friends, Sam, turns 40 on Thursday. And we were talking about this message, you know, because he's, he's just a fantastic guy, and I love talking these, through, these things through with him. 
and he said something that really hit me. He said, around this time of year, I always ask myself, where does Jesus want to be born in my life? Where does Jesus want to be born in my life? What area of your life is Jesus not born in yet? Man, that hit me. Jesus is at once the helpless babe in Mary's arms and the risen Lord. He is at once the broken man hanging on the cross, and he's the one sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He could have chosen any time in history to be born. He could have been born a prince, the son of a king and queen. He could have been raised in the eastern United States in a wealthy family, politically connected. He could have been the next John F. Kennedy. He could have positioned himself anywhere at any time. Yet, he chose to appear as the illegitimate child of a teenage couple that were so poor that they couldn't offer a lamb, but they had to offer two pigeons at their baby's dedication. He chose to be born a slave to Romans, the son of a humble carpenter, born in a stable and placed in a feeding trough. Jesus chooses to come down to you, to me. He chooses to come into our mess, our brokenness, our bondage to sin, to be a helpless babe, and yet the risen Lord. That is hope. Hope is not an emotion. It's not a vague prospect of change. It's not some, you know, uh, like wish that the circumstances are going to be different. Our hope is Christ to come. He is here now, and yet our hope is the coming, the advent of the living God. So Paul writes to Timothy, Brothers and sisters, we do, we do not want you to be uninformed so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That's our hope is that Jesus came and died and was resurrected so that we could have life. So there's a gap between where we are now and where we want to be, the place that God has called us to. We are Joseph enslaved in Egypt, Moses at the edge of the promised land, Esther fasting before she risks her life for the salvation of her entire people. We are Hezekiah's kingdom waiting for the disaster of Assyria and needing a Messiah, the anointed one, a savior. And rather than turn to mediums and spiritists, rather than rely on our own strength and our own ability to succeed, he says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Has come near. Worship team, why don't you guys come on up? So as we transition to a time of response and worship, I want to invite you to ask God for hope. Ask him where the chaos, darkness, and distress is in your life. It's not a sin to look at all of the bad things in your life. You can face the brutal facts, the truth of what is happening in your life, and yet be filled with hope. You know, it says that Abraham, you know, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. And yet he did not waver in unbelief regarding the promises. So you, you can look at the crappy things in your life in the face and say, Jesus, you are here and there is more of you to come. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. I, you know, ask God to reveal to you what repentance looks like. I can't tell you. Maybe you need to repent about something because you haven't trusted God to rule that area of your life. Whether it be your finances, your career, um, your search for the right person, 
maybe God's speaking to you that there's an area of your life that you've hidden from him in darkness. Now is the time for you to turn that over and let his presence and his light shine on that. Maybe you have no idea what we're talking about because this is the first time or one of the first times that you've ever heard a message about God's hope that's found in his son, Jesus. If that's the case, um, if any of you would like to be prayed for, there will be people at the sides um, as the music plays. Please confess to someone if you've made a heart change. Um, and if you'd like someone to talk to you more about that, please talk to the person that brought you or someone at the sides. Um, we're also going to hand out communion in just a minute. And uh, I'll lead you through that. Um, why don't you all stand? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Jesus, we ask for your hope. We want to stare at the darkness and distress in our lives in the face. We want to stare at it and know that it's there, and yet we want to know that you and your presence is already in that place, and there is more of you to come and more of you to be fulfilled in our lives. And God, we ask that in the areas uh, where you are not fully revealed, if there is something that we need to repent from, a sin, not trusting you, whatever that thing is, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would reveal that to us in this moment now. God, we thank you for your promise and your and we just proclaim the greatness of your government and peace, there will be no end.